From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to another two hours of sports analytics. We do it every week here on SiriusXM. We got the whole crew here coming to you via Zoom. We're recording a little bit earlier in the day on Tuesday. We're usually Tuesdays, but we're midday Tuesdays. Shane Jensen is here, Adi Wine, Eric Bradlow, and this is Kate Massey. This is going to be a college football preview show, mostly. Mostly a college football preview show. It's that time of year, week zero last weekend. Week one, full slate of games kicking off this weekend, including some early games. Ohio State, heck, Ohio State, big, fancy Ohio State is playing Thursday night, gentlemen, at Minnesota. Get your TVs ready. At least flip back and forth between innings of your Yankees game to pick up Ohio State on the first big evening of college football. But we want to, a couple things. We want to honor the world of COVID, which is still running our lives. And we want to collect a few little bits and bobs from around the sports before we dedicate the final three quarters of the show to college football. Guys, I have an observation for you. I'm out here in San Francisco and I start teaching. Our classes start out here today. And First experience for me in a year and a half, I went to breakfast at the hotel and they asked for my vaccination card. Apparently, that's how things roll out here in San Francisco. Restaurants are open. You're welcome at restaurants, but you generally need to show proof of vaccination. Here's my question for you. Four months ago, I would have thought that pretty much guaranteed my safety and giddy up. Let's go to some restaurants. Now, I'm not so sure. What do you think? What do you think? How comfortable should I be going out here to a San Francisco restaurant indoors Proof of vaccination. Everybody around me has got proof of vaccination. How comfortable. Everybody's got their hands up. How exciting. Shane Jensen. Well, your safety, your, your personal safety, I think yes. I think you should see uh, pretty, I mean, you know, the returns on, you know, hospitalizations are dead with, even with the Delta, Delta event being vaccinated. Yeah, okay, no, no, let's, let's, let's assume that I don't want to get COVID because there's some tail risk of some long bad thing happening. Okay. So, no, I, I don't want to get COVID. So my concern is I'm in a restaurant full of vaccinated patrons should how, how confident should i feel that i'm truly safe inside no mask eating drinking windows closed everybody's vaccinated eric if you're thank you for pointing that out i would have said the same thing as shane uh no um if my goal was to not get covid I think if I was to go to repeated restaurants like you're describing i would think there'd be a higher than higher than comfortable chance for me with my loss function of getting COVID. No, I wouldn't do it if my goal was to prevent from getting COVID. No, I wouldn't. I think if you go to, I'm making it up, 10, 20, 30 restaurants, your probability is probably higher than I would feel comfortable with. Adi? Well, um, I actually think I don't have a clear answer um, because I don't think we have really good data on on answering that question. Uh, I think I would feel comfortable because I think following the the observations in other countries and in this country, uh, getting sick is not something I'm that particularly worried about. I prefer not to, of course, but I don't think it's the worst outcome in the world and not enough to give up something that I think is quite valuable, which is, say, going out to eat. I was giving my answer just to to Cade's loss function. If you want a different loss function, I'm with Shane. I'll go out to a restaurant right now because, again, the data I just saw yesterday, 205 million people in the United States have been at least one shot. 
Uh, 7,500 of those who have been vaccinated have been hospitalized and 1,500 of those have died. So last time I checked, 1,500, this is from the CDC, we can go to all our different data sources, but 1,500 out of 205 million is an acceptable risk level for me. Yeah, I'm going to take it a little bit more, pre- more precisely. This is a, our country is full of incredible amount of variation. To, to, it's, to give a national figure when you can only be in one place is uh, to miss, you know, mistake what the variants. San Francisco, I think, is very low. I know where we are in Philadelphia. I'm staring at the Philadelphia uh, numbers are really low. I mean, they're, they're, they just have not kicked up in terms of counts of hospitalizations. Even cases really are a tiny fraction of what they were at their height. In December 2020, um, yet in other in other parts of the country, it's sky high and going going bonkers. So I think we really have to be more regional about it. And uh, I think where you are in San Francisco, where we are in Philadelphia, is a totally different risk profile, and then it would be in, in other parts of the country. And you should really look at your local data. Well, so by the way, it, the, the, some areas are more local, even within a the same city. Some areas are more local than others. Some are more traveled by people coming in from other places. And so floating around here on the Embarcadero is probably not the most local environment I could imagine. Perhaps if I rolled into a little neighborhood, it would be more representative of San Francisco. But it's a very good point. We've talked about heterogeneity on the show for the whole crisis. Eric. So I'm also going to build on Adi's point. So I'm going to ask three simple questions in a facetious manner, but I just, I really do want your answers. Which number is bigger, guys? 2881 or 1108? Well, 2881, right? It's like two and a half times bigger. Which one's bigger, 100 or 30? Well, 100 is like three and a third times bigger. I like these softball questions. Well, uh, you'll see why it's it's going somewhere. Which one's bigger? And this answers also Cade's question. Which one's bigger, four or three? Well, four is bigger. The first numbers I've given you is the effectiveness or the it's the effectiveness the dosage level, and the number of weeks from Moderna over Pfizer. So what caught my eye was a study that just came out today that pointed out that they, they tracked 3,000 people in Belgium and their antibody levels against the coronavirus, people that got Moderna versus Pfizer. After the period of which, you know, well, Pfizer has four weeks, three weeks in between, Moderna four. Moderna is giving you 100 milligrams, micrograms. Pfizer is giving 30 the number of antibodies for Moderna is 2,881 compared to 1,108 for Pfizer. So here's my question. This is what caught my eye. When we're all getting booster shots, whether it's five months, eight months, whatever time it is, if that data is real, I'm getting the Moderna. I'm asking for the Moderna if I have a choice. Now, can we separate out the fact that, again, remember I said, one gave 100 micrograms. That was Moderna. One gave Pfizer, gave 30. One was four weeks. One was three weeks. So maybe that's what's causing it. All I'm commenting on is this was a a, a randomized controlled trial study where people did not have self-selection for Moderna versus Pfizer. And the people with Moderna have two and a half times more the antibodies. I forgot to mention they have a double they have double the risk reduction. So that data has also been shown. So I'm sorry, I left out the final outcome, which is the number of severe cases was one half the amount from Moderna patients versus Pfizer. You know, there was this um, anecdotal belief that reactions to Moderna were worse. I think, I, think it, I, I, I came to believe that it was enough of a pattern that it was robust, that reactions to the Moderna vaccine were worse. Is that, could that be related to this idea that there's more antibody production from the Moderna? Is that, does that follow or is that too simple a model in my head? You know, I, I read um, that during the, 
the trials, there were extreme um, overreactions to the Moderna. People got very sick um, and they pulled it back because of the extent to which people were getting sick from the Moderna. And which is one of the reasons why I was a little hesitant to get the Moderna because I was concerned about strong reactions. I think anecdotally, there were strong reactions. I believe that, you know, typically there's way more time spent put in getting these vaccines ready for mass production and distribution. One of the things that we missed in the speed is figuring out the exact right dosage. Um, Eric's point is well, well taken. We don't know whether it's the size or the length of time um, right. and, and what we do going forward. No, no clear, clear indication. Good, good. Actually, well, it would, would, what, would go for a minute. That's why well, I asked the question in three parts. Even if we take, well, it's a fact. Let's do it as a fact that 2880 is greater than 1100. What caused it? We don't know. Well, what, what's nice here is that we've got enough data out there that at least we can establish this observation cleanly. And, and, and finally, some studies rolling in. Let me name a couple of other studies, and then we're going to need to move on and pick up a few sports before we change gears. But uh, David Leonard, who I just want to plug, has a great morning newsletter from the New York Times. And it's, it's consistently good, but he's been consistently good about the pandemic. And he had this observation this week that vaccine immunity may not be waning as quickly as feared or thought. And it's worth digging into. But he's challenged. He's saying there's a bit of a Simpsons paradox going on with this observation that immunity is waning. And the reason this matters is that if people believe immunity is waning, then it argues for the booster. But if immunity is not waning, then you've got a much weaker argument for a booster. So there's important policy implications. And He's his read of the evidence stated with all the caveats and we're not sure yet is that it's not waning as much as we thought. Another observation, this one from the Lancet, good, um, clean observation that Delta has a greater risk of hospitalization. So this is medical journal arguing that it, we have enough evidence to say now, and in some of these observations that it's, it's a big difference in the risk, maybe as high as twice the risk of hospitalization from Delta. The last observation is, is not a study, but just a note that I want to pick up on in future weeks. Dell Medical School here in Austin, this new school that they built downtown, has opened a clinic for long COVID. That, that this apparently is enough of a thing that this hospital is going to take it seriously. This medical center is going to take it, is taking it seriously, studying it. And we're going to learn something about long COVID as a result. But we need to take up this topic. We, we've dug into lots of different pieces of this thing over the year, over the year and a half. We haven't done long COVID yet. Adi. Um, I'm sure this is going to get quite interesting over the long run, but there was an article that I just saw recently posted um, by uh, my friend Alan Salzberg, who's been writing about and talking about uh, COVID it actually makes the claim that they've looked at people who, who are reporting long COVID and about half the people who report long COVID don't even have antibodies. In other words, they never so, had so something else. Yeah. Right. Something else. And, and one of the things that's very difficult about long-term COVID is that it's not that common. And these kinds of symptoms are actually also quite, you know, endemic in the, in the population. People get sick for odd reasons and, and, and talk about it. Um, and it's been, it's becoming, more prevalent that people describe as a cause for their mysterious symptoms, COVID, even when they didn't have it. And of course, sometimes they did. It's going to be figuring to figure out and disentangle all this. And we're going to keep an eye on it, but it's not quite simple. Besides the, the, this data and besides Shane's point about what I've been talking about is the obstacle course, I want the COVID to have to go through Pfizer, which I got, and then Moderna. It also brings back the comment that we had from the guest from Penn the other day. I don't remember his name last week, uh, which was that maybe your body has a maximum amount of a certain 
vaccine that it can actually tolerate. Maybe by spreading it out between Moderna and Pfizer, there's also a benefit in that there's less adverse reaction in your body. So this is making me lean towards, if I get a choice, I'm, uh, the data suggests now I'm learning towards Moderna for me. Well, we're, we're, we are uh, ensemble people by nature. And so, of course, we want to ensemble our immunizations as well. So let's, in our remaining time, pick up a few of the high points from around the world of sports. We've got college football coming up in spades for the next three quarters. But what do we got in other sports, guys? Big news this morning. The Pats released Cam Newton. It's Mac Jones time. Quarterbacks are always so interesting. And there's lots of interesting quarterback stories this year of course this sets up a mac jones to a pack of viola alabama qb1 versus alabama qb1 the next year in week one for the nfl which is good fun um adi what do you think about i'm out here in san francisco the giants and the rays top two teams in baseball what is remarkable remarkable um listen they both the dodgers and the san francisco giants just to make you made just sort of mincemeat out of the uh the mets um, and that, that dashed their hopes. And, and, um, and frankly, Tampa, Tampa Bay just keeps winning. They just, they kept co- almost complete pace with the Yankees over their, 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 uh, winning streak and the Yankees didn't gain any ground. Um, they're just damn good. And I can't quite figure out why or how that's really all I can say. Number 26 in payroll, number 26 in payroll. And they just keep on doing it. They're basically the A's and they've been doing it here for a while. Um, super impressive. Um, by the way, the else? A's are very good too. We should remember that. Damn yeah, good. they just took two from the Yankees. Well, the, those are teams that's fun to pull for. Um, did anybody watch any of this? I heard I had to hear Rufus cry in his beer about DeChambeau dropping this playoff match, the the the, the big tournament, the cut down tournament for the World Championship in golf. DeChambeau goes six extra holes with Cantley and should have won, like for about nine holes in a row, should have won and couldn't get it done. Good drama in the FedEx tournaments there, the FedEx Cup tournament there. Uh, U.S. Open is underway. The tennis tournament, U.S. Open, that is. Uh, Djokovic is favored to take them inside, of course. We had an interesting mailbag question the other day, guys. We don't have Eric to give us the tennis perspective at the moment, but the mailbag question was, do you think the odds of Djokovic getting it done should be adjusted for the pressure of 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 a Grand Slam? It's so rare that anybody wins the actual calendar year Grand Slam. It's been so long. It, do you think that we? Sh- it's not really independent. The odds that we have for him winning the U.S. Open should be recalibrated in some way. Is that an is that a sensible argument? If so, how much would you adjust it? I mean, pressure is a real thing, but I mean, Djokovic has won you know, 15 plus May. I mean, I feel like key of all people, I, I doubt there'll be that much incremental extra pressure on him and his clear ability to deal with pressure throughout his tennis career. But I don't know. I, it, it is hard to, I, I mean, I mean, I, I, I would doubt that there's much of a, an effect there. I'm with you on that, Shane. I think it's an interesting argument, but like, there's got to be a little something, but um, it's like many of these things, these psychological phenomena that we talk about in sports and make such good fodder for commentators. They're probably too small to observe in the data. And if they're too small to observe in the data, we probably shouldn't worry about it too much, especially for a guy, as you say, who's played as much as he had. It's funny. If you ask me the same question about golf, golf I, I would maybe say so just because there's more kind of pressure plays a bigger role. 
Yeah, there's more downtime. And I, I mean, I just, I just, it's more of a thinking pressure kind of environment than tennis, but yeah, yeah, that's interesting. And I think that's fair. The other thing that, that, that happened that I'm really sorry, I didn't get to see, I know Messi made his debut for PSG. Um, and that's just, it apparently broke all kinds of records for soccer viewing in Spain. So the locals, uh, his former club and fans in that country aren't, aren't holding it against him that he's changed, but just seismic developments. Oh, and Ronaldo moves back to Manchester United. I mean, these are probably the two biggest names in soccer, both changing clubs in the last few weeks. Um, Good fun. Very interesting. Of course, it doesn't speak very well for La Liga, but so be it. That's the way it goes in the competitive world of sports. All right, guys, that has been Q1, a little bit of COVID, a quick run around the world of sports that does not include college football. And we are on to three quarters of college football playoffs coming up next. We have three. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. You can join us. We wish you would. You can reach out on Twitter at WMoneyball is our handle at WMoneyball. We're up for your questions, your suggestions, your criticisms, whatever you got. You can also email us, moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu, moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. It's our mailbag. Reread everything you got. We love hearing from you. We try to get as much of those on the air as possible, so please do send us your email. All right, guys, we're on to college football. This is week one. We have the last few years done a pretty much dedicated college football show and we're going to do that this year. We've got three guests, three of the best followers of college football out there. And kicking us off is Bruce Feldman. Bruce has been on the show a number of times, going way back, going back to our first year, actually. He's a writer with The Athletic, one of the prominent football writers there on that very good sports outlet. He's been involved with football for a long time. ESPN. He's Fox. He does, the, he does the studio stuff with Fox and sideline stuff with Fox. We're lucky to have him. Bruce, welcome back to the show. Good to be on with you guys. Always enjoy it. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Well, we're here. We're week one. I know you're excited. Got lots of things going on. Want to hear from you on, on lots of different fronts. I think the first thing I'd like to hear, we've got already some early returns on 2021. We had a week zero last week, which had some interesting results. One of the things I always think about when we have a chance to talk to you is coaching. People really look to you when the coaching carousel starts spinning, people look to you to find out what's going to happen. And we've got an early result on Scott Frost and Nebraska. People were really paying attention. Bielema's first game at Illinois Frost first game after a few seasons, really struggling. And I'm curious what you think is going on there. And I really want to set it up to find out what your perspective is on why coaching hires are so hard in college football. Scott Frost, everyone thought was a slam dunk when they got him from UCF coming back home, hero national title quarterback. Everyone thought this was like the key to Nebraska getting back. And and if Scott Frost doesn't work out at Nebraska, how can we ever be sure anybody is going to work out? Yeah, I I think you nailed it. Everyone, including me, I remember going to Lincoln his first spring there and it was, uh, I guess, it's four years ago and was spent a week there and was around the staff, was around the players, around based around the football complex for a while and spent a bunch of time talking to Scott Frost, came away convinced 
that he was the first guy who was going to be able to fix it. Now there'd been, you know, Frank Solich actually did a pretty good job before they ran him out of there. Bo Pelini won some games. They didn't, you know, they were uncomfortable with his temperament and how he handled things in in game. Mike Riley was a bad fit. Uh, Bill Callahan, underwhelming there. Scott Frost, when I talked to him that, you know, that week really preached how Nebraska football had lost its way, lost its DNA and what made it special. And also talked about, hey, there's an example not that far away from us where they know the the secret sauce and they're living it and they're thriving from it. And that's Wisconsin. Wisconsin doesn't have top 25 recruiting classes, but they bludgeon people and they have an identity and they are recruiting to it and developing it. It's working. And so why can't they do that there? And he hit the ground running. He he, uh, flipped a really good quarterback. He seemed like a great fit. Uh, You know, really good character kid, dual threat guy, Adrian Martinez, Good freshman year, and then it's been very shaky since then. And I don't think it's – it's not, you know, Adrian's fault. I think one of the issues here has been, you know, when Scott Frost hit it big at UCF and turned a program that was really, you know, kind of a mess and turned it into an undefeated team in two years, I think he was able to capitalize on the speed they had there and a lot of playmakers – And for all sorts of reasons, they have been very limited in their skill guys. And they did have Wondell Robinson was one of those guys who should have been a really good fit. He was there for he's there and he transferred. Now he's back home in Kentucky. Uh, Maurice Washington was another playmaker who flashed some, but also had a big off field issues. He's no longer there. So you take out two dynamic athletes. I think one of the problems that they have on the front end is Adrian Martinez is, you know, he broke a 75 yard touchdown run in the game when they were way down against Illinois the other day. He is their best playmaker. He's also their quarterback. So it's, there's a lot on him. And I think the second issue for them, which is probably as problematic is they now have whenever, whenever something bad starts to happen, it compounds and they cannot get out of their own way. It's a lot of mistakes. And I can't tell you how many times I watched a game where it's like, oh, there's a snap that goes over Adrian Martinez's shoulder, or there's a bust here, or there's a drop pass or miss, you know, whatever. And it just sets them back. And I think you got to remember when you're dealing with college athletes and 18, 19, 20 year olds, that psychological belief is a tricky thing to navigate because for a couple of years, I was around Oklahoma when Alex Grinch took over the defensive coordinator. And he, you know, he would even in these meetings and he would talk in great detail and exasperated about what it is like to turn the corner. And then they give up a big play and all of a sudden everybody just kind of sinks and it just you can feel it. And I think now, at least Oklahoma, I think they've been able to finally turn the page on that. In this case, clearly Nebraska, no matter how much they think they've gotten better, has not been able to solve that. So, Bruce, I I actually spent a fair amount of time watching that game uh, for hypothetical financial reasons, of course. Um, And of course, Illinois quarterback, as you know, got knocked out in the first quarter of that game. And I'm like, well, that bet's over with. But I wanted to build on something you said. 
Um, do you think we'll see a time where there'll be a ranking of coaches like a Scott Frost based on what you said, which is let's look at the number of star recruits they have. They come in. Maybe we add up the number of stars or it's the number of starting stars or it's the maximum number of stars or whatever we do with the distribution of stars and say he's underperforming for the talent he has. Because I've never seen a ranking system like that. Do you think that could be in the future of college football coaching assessment? Uh, Eric, I, I don't, I mean, could we see a ranking like that? Yes, because I think, you know, there's going to be so many places that look to quantify something like that. The, the challenging part with something like that is Matt Campbell's recruiting rankings are worse. You know, this team is average recruiting ranking now at Iowa state of number 52. They finished number nine in the country last year, best ever, um, on the, on the field and their preseason number seven. I, I think the challenge with something like that is you like if you don't recruit, if you're not chasing after big time recruits, we're not aggressively recruiting. We can use a euphemism like that for however you want to call schools that are seem to have more chance to land four and five star guys. But that's part of the deal. You know, like, I mean, is Kirby smart to this point underperforming because he has more five stars probably than Clemson has had, you know, to work with and Clemson's won national titles and he's come close, but hasn't. Um, I guess you could, you could definitely make that case. I think, and I think that's something for, for, you know, podcasts and writers to discuss. I'm not sure if I'm an AD, I want to say, well, he's not recruiting as well as these schools, but he's actually performing. You know, it's like, because at the end of the that's day, part of performance, that's, that's yeah. keep going. I'm, I'm completely agreeing with you. You're right. Cause that's maybe he's underperforming in recruiting and on the field, but there could be one or neither or both. Yeah. And I, I think it's also a slippery slope because just from being around the recruiting process, you know, there are stories you hear and it's anecdotally, but I've heard them more than a few about, you know, different coaches who may, may, it, the financial incentive to have higher rank recruiting classes, and they may be involved in somewhat of the process of lobbying to get guys higher stars. So I think it's, it's a, it's a very murky process on that end, you know, and, you know, it's funny just on this side of it, I'm, you know, talking to you guys, it's, I'm curious where you you are with this, but you know, the other day I saw ESPN put out, it's like top hundred football players. And just because you mentioned this, Eric, about the star ranking, it's really interesting. If you look at the top 10 players in the NFL right now, at least according to the ESPN rankings, um, there is one guy of the top 10 who is a five star. There are zero four stars. The rest are two are three stars or lower what they were coming out of high school. And so the average ranking, if you put those 10 guys, these are the 10 best players in the, in, in the world of football. The average ranking is actually a two-star, which is crazy. Now you have, you have Jalen Ramsey, who's the five, and then you have, you know, a Josh Allen out of high school is a zero, a Tyreek Hill was a zero, and you have a bunch of three stars. So, you know, it's, it's I don't so, want to say it's fool's goal because the rankings matter, but they're not the be-all, end-all, I guess. We're going to call that a base rates problem um, because there's only 30 blue, blue chip. Or an errors star. and variable problem. Like your, your X's are measured with massive error. Like why should we assume that those numbers are right too? And we do this all the time in statistics. We try to measure outcomes. You brought up so many good things, Bruce, which is what are the outcomes you want to measure? 
Like, is it winning? I mean, there's lots of things. And then you bring up the fact that the, the inputs that you're putting in have massive error too. So those are both great things and for I, a statistics I, show. I would guess that quarterbacking is one of the more, one of the less predictable things coming out of high school. And I assume most of the top 10 NFL players or top I, 20 I, NFL I, players I, are quarterbacks, right? I don't know so if that's true because Bruce is actually a good person to talk to about that because he's around the Elite 11 so much, which is these camps for the top high school quarterbacks. Bruce, where would you put the predictability of high school recruiting quarterback versus non-quarterback? Um. I don't think it's the hardest. I think the hardest, you know, getting to, to where uh, Shane was going with that, I think is actually offensive linemen. One of the things I did a story a couple of years ago for the athletic on this and why it's so tricky to evaluate. And one of the things that came up, and I mean, I talked to Kirk Ferentz, Mike Sherman, like some of the guys who are the best, you know, who have been, you know, great at it, but different, different people. And um, what's, what's hard is sometimes these guys are, they excel in high school because they're just so much bigger than everybody else. Mm -hmm. Right. And then, you know, we all went to high school. Maybe there's a couple guys who are over 250 pounds. You know, we all went to high school, I guess at different times, different places, but you know, it's, it's different. And a lot of times the guys who end up becoming first round picks are guys who might've been tight end size and ended up developing into being Six six three ten, where they might have been six five three two forty five, as opposed to there's a lot of guys who are four and five star guys out of high school who are three hundred forty five pounds. They maul people, but then they have weight issues and all sorts of other health issues. They're constantly battling. So I think that's the part where O line is really hard to project. Um, I think quarterbacks. The thing that makes it probably a little easier. That's not to say some quarterbacks don't go bust and some other quarterbacks don't come out of nowhere, but there's so many eyeballs on them now. And because of, you know, look, you're, you're from Texas and I know that this will resonate with you. So much has changed with in the last two decades when it became a seven on seven world down there, mm-hmm. so they're getting so many reps at doing this. So I think, you know, a lot of kids I'm fascinated to see there's two quarterbacks from Texas that are, from basically in the class two years ago, both guys, I think have a chance to be, you know, big stars. Um, Haynes King, Hudson card, Hudson card was slightly rated higher, but we'll see how this is going to play out because, you know, so much is dependent on right now. I like Hudson cards chances better than I did a year ago because he has Steve Sarkeesian working with him. Who's done a really good job with quarterbacks Jimbo obviously has done a really good job with quarterbacks. He has Haynes King, but then it's like, what system do you go into? And so much, there's so much turnover. Like right now you have Sean Clifford at Penn state. He's on his third system in three years. I mean, it's not to say he can't succeed in that. He's got good receivers, but it's just, it's a lot of variables that I feel like happen with quarterbacks that maybe even more so than they do with other positions. Bruce, we were talking about that at the pro level just last week on the show. We were talking about the, the rookie quarterbacks and who we thought would do best. And we, we basically concluded it doesn't even matter who's the better quarterback. It's who's in the best situation. I'm predicting just, Mac Jones now. It's just come to me. <laughs> new information, new revelation. Um, well, just a quick, we're, we're talking to Bruce Feldman, and he's a writer on The Athletic, among other things. And he just had an article over the weekend about that Hudson Card decision by the Horns, talking with some former coaches who had some insight into what he looked like as a redshirt freshman last year. Bruce, you've got a game this weekend, which is, it's weird, it's kind of slightly below 
the radar, given what a great non-conference game it is. UCLA, LSU is traveling out to Los Angeles to play UCLA. I think it's an interesting game because it's, it gives us a little peek into a couple of blue blood programs who aren't quite – I mean, it's shocking how quiet LSU has been. They're only you know a year and a half removed from a national championship. Can, I know you've been studying this game. Can you talk a little bit about – let's take each of those programs as just a way to get into some of these interesting kind of maybe not top-line stories for 2021. But UCLA – couple things chip kelly's been out there for a few years is he gonna get it done this is your backyard you've got some insight there is kelly is kelly gonna get it done and by the way bruce has an article from july on the athletic about the bruins the other thing about ucla i'm really curious about growing up i didn't greatly differentiate usc and ucla they seemed like this is glorious you know rivalry they were both kind of top of the field but in recent years, it really feels like UCLA is a shadow of what USC is in terms of football priority, tradition, potential. Is that true? And if so, why? Why the big difference between those two schools out there? I think it is true. Um, I, I would point to this. A couple of years, a couple of years, almost a decade now, Jim Mora gets to UCLA. He beats USC three times in a row right out of the gate. It gets to signing day. And they come head to head with USC, maybe for four or five kids that they priority California kids. I feel like they were all Southern California kids. And uh, I remember talking to him on signing day and he was very matter of fact about it. He said, look, these kids, this didn't happen overnight. These kids grew up wanting to be Trojans. And I think the reality is, and I live in, I didn't grow up here, but I live in Southern California, USC football is different than, you know, I, I think at this point, if you meet anybody, they don't remember kids I'm talking about, or, or even around that, you know, under 40, they don't remember John Wooden's UCLA teams. I don't even remember John Wooden's UCLA mm-hmm. team, you know? Mm-hmm. So, but, but, but USC has had great players and then they got a second, not just a second dose, but like Pete Carroll, Reggie Bush, they gave it more oxygen than all of a sudden mm-hmm. the, these kids. And it's shocking to me because I'm doing the math and I'm like, you know, I remember going, I work with Reggie Bush now and I went with him to big 12 media days two years ago. And I remember the Iowa, the Iowa state players there and as well as CD lamb were starstruck seeing Reggie Bush. And I just remember mm-hmm. thinking, like, you guys were probably five years old when Reggie Bush was at USC. And it wasn't like Reggie was, was, um, you know, Tyreek Hill in the NFL, he had one Pro Bowl year, but it wasn't like he was that guy in the NFL. He was that guy in college. And yet there's just a star factor on USC football that is different, especially for the kids who grow up here. And so I think that's where it's different. It's been over 20 years since UCLA has won something out here. Okay, so very importantly, you're putting it on memory and recency and performance and not on institutions and priority and resources. I think, no, that there's, there's a lot of it that goes into it. I do think um, it is the commitment to football. I mean, UCLA can pay analysts 50 grand a year. A lot of schools are paying them six, six figures. Um, there's just now UCLA really upgraded its facilities in the last couple of years, but I still think when it comes to certain things usc is is just much more aggressive and committed to playing football at a level like the sec schools and ohio state are i don't think ucla is committed in that way i just it's just the reality of the place now what i would ask you before i get back to the chip kelly question is 
you said get it done. What do we define as get it done at UCLA now for Chip Kelly? I think they need to be they need to get into the Pac-12 title game. They need to be very competitive in the South, and ideally they need to show up in that Pac-12 title game. I do think then he will get it done at that. Um, I don't know if it's this year. Look, I picked them to be uh, a top 25 team. I think they will win the Pac-12 South. Hmm. What Just from being around this program, I think he has really overhauled the roster dramatically, and they are much better on the offensive line. They're much better on both lines than they've been in a while. Now, on defensive line, they've had a good player here or there. But I think, you know, what what really kind of was an issue of the of the program when it really started to slide at the end of the Jim Mora time was they had the staff had recruited off of lists. And I think, yeah, you can get some good star (laughs) ranking, but you also maybe get guys who are not as invested mentally in football. And I think that's what happened. And. I think they tried to sort a lot of that out. I think they've had some other challenges. Like one of the things that they've been really good at is taking transfers. Um, most of the most of the best players on the defense are guys who started their career someplace else. Mm-hmm. And I think what they've been able to have a better feel for is, hey, let's get guys who we know are. Um, and Kelly and I have talked a lot about this. You know, he, he subscribes to the Bill Belichick model of, you know, he wants – are they really smart? Can we count on them? Hmm. Are they tough? And he really wants guys who have length too. Um, the latter is, is, you know, everybody wants that. I'm not yeah, saying right. with those other things, but I think what's, what's different about this team now is they have enough big people and they have enough pieces where I think they can be a really interesting offense because they're going to do a lot of stuff formationally. They do a lot of stuff with tight ends. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it's weird how it's kind of worked because if you look at their tight ends, the three that you're going to say, I mean, they have more than three, but um, Greg Dulcich grew up right near the Rose Bowl. He's a walk-on and he is a, not a traditional tight end. They move him around. He's like a big receiver, but he's big. Uh, Michael Martinez, anybody else would look at as, Ooh, that's a five-star offensive tackle recruit. He's six six two seventy plus the biggest hands in like the history of football, 86 inch, you know, wingspan crazy. Um, and they, and is, you know, he was on my freaks list is, is different than uh, Michael Aziki. Who's another like Dulcich, really big, fast guy who was a receiver, now a tight end. And I think formationally the Kelly's really crafty at what they can do to try to see what kind of like, what kind of answers are you going to have to this? And I think with that, with two really good running backs, they like Britton Brown, they love Zach Charbonnet, the Michigan transfer, and they have a quarterback who can run. Now, the question is, and I'll I'll wrap it up with this, Dorian Thompson-Robinson did not play a lot of quarterback coming out of high school. He played one year. He's got a really good arm. He can run. He's a bright kid. But he sometimes tries to play, do too much, you know, maybe tries to be a little Superman back there. And his – consistency and accuracy the, uh, in the opener. That was the one thing that wasn't great. He was pumped up. He missed some shots. If he is on, they could be really, really good. Like if he's, if he takes a big step up, up I think they can win the pack 12. If he takes a little step up, I think they win the pack 12 South. That's exciting. It, it's more fun when UCLA is good. It's more interesting when Chip Kelly has got a good team. That's um, that's a great pep talk. Thank you. On, on the LSU side, maybe we can keep it as simple as, 
people don't know what to expect from them this year. And obviously they're in the toughest division in football. What, what, what do you see happening with this team? And then the longer term question is how do you think they're situated in the changing sec? How does LSU, how does it affect LSU in particular to have Texas and Oklahoma come in over there? I mean, LSU, I mean, they're just barely removed from winning the whole dang thing. And yet they're just a complete mystery. And, and Bruce, of course, Bruce has a book with Coach Ogeron from just last year. So you've got some deep insight into that program. Yeah, the book flipped the script. We're going to see if they're going to be able to flip the script again, because in a lot of ways, it feels like three years ago where coming off his first full season and they lost to Troy, they got blown out by Mississippi State. I think he wondered about the leadership in the locker room um, and he made some staff changes in this case. You know, you have two new coordinators, new play caller on offense, new play caller on defense. The play caller on offense, Jake Peets, he has been up for some OC jobs, but has never been called a game before. The play caller on defense, Durante Jones, has called it at at Bowie State, small schools, then eventually was in the NFL on Mike Zimmer's staff with the Vikings. You know, I think they feel like they've gotten younger and they feel like the communication is better. I, I think I would start with this with them. Last year, he hired Bo Pelini. Granted, it was a fractured offseason. There was all sorts of issues. Some of the best players opted out right out of the gate. Uh, Derek Stingley Jr., their best player, was uh, was unable to play in the opener. And they basically found out the eve of the game against uh, the air raid at, at Mississippi State and lose. I think for them, uh, they should be. Whoever was going to be the defensive coordinator, I think, was walking into a situation where they should be dramatically better. They are really good on the D-line. They are, should be really good on, in the secondary. Linebacker, we'll see. I don't think like they have athletes there. We'll see what it's like. Mm-hmm. I think they will be much better this year. The question is to me, I think they're probably a nine and three team. Um, but, you know, like right now there's a lot of TBDs. I mean, it's, they're a hard team to get a read on. I think they're a lot better than the, the people, usually the people who felt like Ed Ogeron shouldn't, didn't deserve, shouldn't have had the job. Those are the people who think it's probably okay. He's going to be Gene, Gene Chizik. He wasn't Gene Chizik. Like it wasn't like a one year wonder. They were good the year before they won the national title. I think that's what they will be like this year. I think okay. they will be. I think they'll be a nine or ten win team again. Okay. Well, um, with with that with those two analyses, I mean, your game this weekend really does set up to be an interesting one. Great one for people to to watch and and see what those two teams are shaping up to be. Bruce, um, we're going to run out of time on you in a minute, but we want to get some questions. Let's do some quick hitters around around the sport. Um, see how, if we can just cover a few of these. Let me see. Which of the big five, there's consensus top five, has been for a few years now, top five teams out there, Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State, Georgia, and Oklahoma. Dagum, Oklahoma is consensus number two. I mean, literally unanimous number two. Of these top five, who do you think is most likely to disappoint this year? Uh you know, I have Iowa State as my sleeper team to come out of the Big 12. So that would probably mean Oklahoma. Um, but I would not be surprised. I have some concerns about Ohio State's defense. It wasn't very good last year, and they have to replace all their linebackers. So they got unproven guys. They'll be better on the defensive line, but I'm not as I'm not 100% feeling on, on them either. Okay, got it. Ohio State. All right, staying in that part of the world, pick the two Cincinnati games in the state of Indiana, weeks three and four, two of the biggest games of the season for group of five representation. Since he goes to Indiana first 
and then they go to South Bend for Notre Dame. How do you think those two are going to shake out? Fortunately, they have a bye week in between those two, I think. Is that um, true? I think it is, yeah. Uh, I think they will split. My, my gut is thinking that they may get Indiana. So if I had to, if I had to guess, and I'm just guessing. Okay. Okay, one and one on those two big weeks. Um, more overrated, Notre Dame or UNC? Oh, good question. Uh, I think UNC at number 10 is a little too high. I think they're number 16, 17, something like that. They lost some – I think they lost too many good skill guys. All right, last one here. Uh, late in the season, Auburn goes into College Station and played Texas A&M. Auburn with new coach Brian Harson. Right now, the bookies would make that about a 10-point line for the Aggies. If you had to pick that game right now against the spread, Auburn or AM. Of course, what I'm really trying to get at here is what do you think of Brian Harson's Auburn and a little bit of AM? What do you think about that? Uh, that's in College Station, right? College Station, yeah. I would if you I would take more than 10. If you right really? now you like the Aggies. Yeah, right? I think Jimbo has a lot to work with. He has really good running backs really good tight ends. And he has those, some of those running backs are like really interchangeable, can move them around. You got a mobile quarterback. Now they do have to replace the whole, almost the entire O line. But, you know, a minute ago, you said how the SEC West is the toughest division in college football, which it almost always is. Like if LSU doesn't come back to, to being really, really good, I'm not looking at that division as like, yeah. it's not as strong, like, Let's let's give Alabama what they're doing and just say they're there. But like I'm not the Mississippi schools. I'm not thinking are top 20 teams. Uh, Auburn, I think I, I'm not buying them at this point. Arkansas. Meh. So, you know, I'm looking at LSU, A&M and Alabama. Like to me, this is not I'm not saying it's not the best division, but I feel like it's like may not be a given this year. Got it. Got it. Very fair. All right. We need to catch you loose, but I want to ask you one question. Uh, I, I always have to ask a longhorn question, take advantage of you people who have a different perspective on things, but, but it's especially interesting to hear from you because you said this saying that our first year was 2014 and that was Charlie Strong's first year. And you said this thing that I always remember because it was so disappointing to me at the time. I jokingly asked you how many national championships you thought Charlie Strong would win. And you of course, didn't take that bait, but you said it's a very different recruiting environment now. It's a, very, it's a much more difficult recruiting environment. And these were such prescient words. If, as the SEC flip has been talked about, people have talked about what A&M's recruiting rankings have done in the 10 years since they went to the SEC versus what Texas's have done. And so, yes, different recruiting environment. But I'm still curious where you stand with Sark. You've had almost a year now to think about Sark's move over there. You were just talking about um, he being him being a positive for Hudson Card as he moves into the position. What are your expectations for Sark's UT teams? And one way to put it, you know, very precisely, Strong got three years, Herman got four years. How many years do you think Sark will get? If Sark is in, is you know, this is a very high pressure job, you know, and if Sark is is in a good place mentally and can stay in a good place mentally, I think he has a chance to get them to be a playoff team again. I mean, he is such, he, you know, a couple things he has that really pop, like 
I did this story a couple of weeks back or a week ago about Al- the evolution of the Alabama offense. And so you get a lot of different perspectives on the guys who coach there. And one of the people made the compelling point. He was like, and these are guys who, who were on the staff and said, you know, Lane's a really good play caller, but Lane is not a quarterback guy. He's a receivers guy. And mm-hmm. then talked about Brian Dayball, you know, and then they got to Sark and was like, Sark coaches read Sark coaches, the quarterbacks, you know, different and better. And I think, He's he's always been able to run the football, and now he inherits Bajan Robinson, who I think has a chance to be Heisman caliber. So there are some pieces there. Like it wouldn't totally shock me if in 2022 they were a playoff team. Like honestly, because he has if if Hudson Card is as is as gifted as the people I've talked to inside the program say he is, and I know what uh, what Robinson is. Now I don't think they're they're what, what hurt. To me, Tom Herman, you know, the recruiting rankings weren't as much the issues. They missed or missed, had a lot of misevaluations on defensive backs. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. just guys, if you look at where those guys were ranked and what they turned out to be, either they weren't developed or they were misevaluated, you know. Mm-hmm. And so they got to get a lot better on the, on the defensive side of the ball. I'm not saying they were quite what Oklahoma was, but they weren't anywhere near as good as Oklahoma on offense. So I feel like the gap wasn't, you know, like mm-hmm. if Texas was in those games, I think Texas would be would be reeling, too. So I, I think offensively they can like they have a chance, honestly, to feel like Oklahoma did in the early part of of what Lincoln Riley had there. I like the staff he put together in Austin. I think Pete Kwiatkowski is really good. I think mm-hmm. Jeff Banks is. I mean, these guys are top level assistants. And he's got a bunch of them. So mm-hmm. the, the one question I have is if Sark is in a good place mentally, because out here, you know, we knew, you know, things imploded and it's unfortunate. And, you know, everything I've heard now from people who are working with him now has been extremely positive. Mm-hmm. So if it stays on that track, I think he has a chance. I really do. With Tom Herman, it, unfortunately for him, it just felt like when you talk to people who were there, the players just didn't buy in. They just didn't believe it, you know? And if your players don't believe it and there's no identity there, man, you can't, you can't sustain it. You may have some good games. You may have even a good season, but I think if they don't feel like they believe you or they know who you are and the identity never materializes, man, you're digging out of a hole. So interesting. You say that Bruce, my, my, perception was that they they bought into it long enough they bought into it for a while and then at some point they realized this is my perception they realized that he didn't have the goods that he that he said you do this and we'll win and they did it and he didn't have the system or whatever was needed to operationalize those guys my sense was they did buy in for a year and a half they made up, you know, like, but I, I don't know if you remember this, but they had a year, it was, it was maybe the year before he got fired and they had, they were good on offense, bad on defense early and they had lost a game and my crew was doing their the game against TCU. And that week I was around the team and you could feel it. The people who normally don't jump off the bandwagon until after there's a coaching change, they were already kind of one foot out and that game, Gary Patterson, great defensive coach, he got uh, he got Sam. He picked him off like four times with adjustments. TCU beat them. And I think it was like, essentially, Tom Herman was dead man walking at that point. All right. Well, um, super interesting to hear. Listen, Bruce, thanks for making the time. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Wish you the best with all. 
You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. College football preview edition 2021 halfway point. We're delighted to have three very special guests today. And in this quarter, one of our longtime favorites, Bill Conley, is joining us. We're lucky to get him. Kids doing so much. I don't know how he works in any interviews. Bill, good morning to you. Welcome. I will always say yes to an invitation, just so you know. So hold on, that makes us feel not so special. <laughs> no, no, you, to your invitation, <laughs> not any invitation. Um, listen, man, so much we could talk about. Let me just start with, I'm curious, give us an honest answer. Give us an honest. <laughs> this is week one. It's a lot of fun. This is like, we all wait for this for months and months. What's on your mind week one? Forget your articles you got to write or whatever. As a football consumer, what do you, what's on your mind this week? Whether it's this week's games or the season or whatever, what do you think about it? Um, well, it's still, I guess, on the season. Just, you know, spent the last eight months or so kind of crafting out. Oh, here, here are my main questions. Here are the best teams. Here are the ones that are the biggest wild cards and so on and so forth. And then, um, and basically until the games kick off on Thursday, I guess that's where my head's at. But once the games kick off, it's just basically first weekend is just a fire hose and you're just trying to get as many little teeny tiny little partial answers as you can possibly get yeah. uh, while understanding we're going to overreact to pretty much everything we see. Right. Right. Well, let's talk about that week one then. Um, yeah. What, what, well, one, I, I gotta, I gotta give, give you some, a chance to talk about your hometown team. I mean, Missouri feels pretty far off the radar right now. How are you feeling? How many games will you go to? Do you go out and tailgate then go back home? Like what, what does it work? The, the full on in-person fan experience. What's that like for you? I mean, um, it's well, I mean, I'm definitely tailgating. <laughs> I'm, I'm definitely going to make tailgate appearances. Um, because I mean, among other things, I've barely been barely seen friends in person in two years now. Right. Um, and this and is this an outdoor is, activity. What could be better? Outdoor exactly. Activity. The outdoor part's fine. We do have a 10 year old at home uh, who doesn't, uh, who hasn't gotten shots or anything and or, uh, you know, any vaccinations in the arm of late. Right. Uh, and right. it doesn't sound like that's going to happen anytime soon. So um, indoor, if it's particularly crowded or in the stadium, particularly crowded, we're not real sure what the plan is going to be there, but at the very okay. least there will be tailgating. And really that's all that, all that really matters. Okay, good. Well, listen, game notable week one games. Let me hit you up real quick for, for a few. How interesting they are to you, what you think we'll learn. I mean, let's start with a headliner, Clemson, Georgia. What are you expecting out of that? And, and a related question, we asked Bruce Feldman this in, in the previous segment. Of the big five, kind of consensus top five teams, Clemson, Georgia, Alabama, Ohio State, and Oklahoma, who do you think is most likely to disappoint this year? And is it either one of these teams we're going to be watching week one? Um, well, I guess the, the smart money's on Georgia, but I, I don't think they're actually going to disappoint this time. The smart money because base rates say it's going to be Georgia? Right. They're, they're the most recent to have disappointed mm-hmm. um, among that group. So, I, I, I mean, that, they're the most interesting team in the country this year to me, just because of what they have, what their obvious potential is, and the simple fact that, you know, last two years – you know, they, they, they haven't been as good as they're quite as good as they were supposed to be. And so that makes them super interesting. And it's funny because, you know, so many questions that we had about them last year, well, they're still kind of stone age offense and Alabama's doing these crazy things, but Kirby's still playing defense and so on and so forth. 
they they kind of had the pieces in place last year, but um, their first choice quarterback got hurt or uh, opted out. Um, JT Daniels wasn't ready yet. They threw in the red shirt freshman, Dewan Mathis. He very much wasn't ready yet. And so suddenly they had a walk on at quarterback. And of course you're going to have to <laughs> to keep things pretty, pretty straightforward and, and try to lean on your defense in that situation. And so um, I think they kind of got painted with an unfair brush last year. They were probably okay. ready to be better had they had the quarterback in place. And now they do. Bill, I, I was looking at FPI's simulation numbers earlier today. So yep. FPI, a, a, a rival of an ESPN in-house rival to S&P Plus. <laughs> but they had this nice little spreadsheet with all their sims. Um, and Georgia, they have way down at only 5% chance of national title. Of the other big five, they're like by far the lowest. Don't you feel like five is a little low? I mean, <laughs> they, don't, they shouldn't be a fifth of Clemson, should they? Or a fourth of Ohio State? Well, I mean, having to play Clemson in Alabama and having to beat one of them just to make the playoff. Clemson's always got the the best path because I mean they get a free they get a mulligan during the season as long as they win the yeah, ACC right. championship they're twelve and one and they'll make the playoff and they have the they're, they're, since they're the most likely to make the playoff they're the most likely to theoretically win so right. they should always be higher than Georgia. Uh, Georgia in this case does have to go one and one theoretically against or two and one if you want to, if you think Florida is going to be good this year two and one against Clemson Florida Alabama. Um, plus beating Auburn and all those. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the, the path is definitely harder for them. So that's going to tamp mm-hmm. down their odds. But, I mean, yeah, I, I think it really just depends on what you think of a four-game sample from JT Daniels, right? That's If that's what we see all year from him, they're set. They're, they're going to be just fine, and they're going to have very good chances. It's just we don't quite know if that's the, the, the full JT Daniels we're going to get. Bill, uh, the way you were just talking about Clemson and kind of they get a mulligan, they can go 12 and one in the ACC. Why can't, do you think there'll be a day soon where we can say that about the, you know, Pac-12 or the Big 12? Like, let's give Texas or, well, who knows where Texas is going to be, but right now, Texas or Oklahoma, let's give them a mulligan. Why can't they go 12 and one and make the championship? What's so great about Clemson and who they're playing? Yeah, sorry, Kate, to to laugh so quickly at the Texas I reference. I didn't. I that. I didn't that was, that was a bad reflex. The, he chose the wrong of the two schools. <laughs> no, that. I mean, as far as the Pac-12 goes, I mean, Clemson. It's not necessarily that they just get benefit of the doubt that other schools don't. It's that they're going to beat the teams they're supposed to beat to get to twelve and one at the end of the year. You like if USC was the warship that they've been at time from time to time, they'd be kind of in the same boat. Although, I mean, the Pac-12 is. I've been screaming this for years and, and uh, you know, it doesn't really get me anywhere, but Pac-12 is better than the ACC on average. There well, are more. T- that's exactly yeah. my point. Why right. can't, you know, USC or UCLA go 12 and one. And why can't we at least have a discussion about them right. over Clemson? Doesn't Ohio state kind of have, have a similar situation. They, they essentially have them all again. again. Sort of. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, technically, I guess it depends against, against who, but right. Like, I mean, technically you, everyone gets a mulligan almost. Um, it takes a lot. If you, if you get to 12 and one, you're probably in not always ways obviously but most of the time and um you know it's, it's just kind of a safe bet obviously you know my favorite scenario to think about is um clemson loses to georgia you know win some close games but whatever finishes 12 and 1 cincinnati meanwhile uh yeah, beats notre right. wins at notre dame wins at uh indiana blows out everybody in the aac and finishes 13 and 0 uh with a, with a schedule strength that is extremely close like in my i i ran some strength of schedule numbers last week and based on the preseason projections like C- clemson's schedule ranks 70th and cincinnati's ranks 79th so like 
<laughs> they just because not only does Clemson play in a pretty weak conference, the ACC or ACC is just not very deep overall. They miss Miami, they miss North Carolina, they miss Virginia Tech. They don't play any of the wow. good teams from the coastal, and so they have the the weakest possible schedule. Uh, hey, and, by the way, shouldn't this this is a perennial problem? It's really frustrating to have that kind of imbalance, and Clemson does get this pass, even though they've built a great program. They do get this regular season pass. Shouldn't that be one more reason we like the idea of an expanded playoff? So they'd have to go through one more qualifying game to get right. Or two yeah, more. I mean. The ACC is really the only conference that should object to an expanded playoff just because, I mean, they're getting Clemson in no matter what, but I mean, yes, like that's, well, I mean, I guess they would get in regardless, but it would be more work. They would have to prove themselves a little bit more. That's right. Um, They they, they advance, they, they qualify less deeply into the finals that way. And I hadn't thought about it that way, but it would, it would ease my frustration with the Clemson (laughs) ACC thing. If that were true, listen, let's jump conferences to the big 10. You talked about learning some things in week one, God bless the big 10 give us in week zero, week one. I mean, look at what they're giving us week one. What do you think about these games? Or what what are you expecting out of say Indiana at Iowa? So Indiana's, you know, as much as everyone loved them last year, they're four point underdogs going into Iowa. Let's take that one. And then we'll do a couple more. Yeah. I love this. I mean, I, I, I think if I was a fan of one of these big 10 teams, I would hate it. Cause I like having the tune up before things actually get rolling. But, <laughs> it's easy for us to like, right? Right. Exactly. But I love it. Yeah. Um, I, well, Iowa, Indiana is an interesting one because Iowa, they, they come out of the gates last year. They lost two games by like, th- th- like three points or something like that. And then they were probably the second best team in the big 10. After that, they blow blew out pretty much everybody struggle against Nebraska, which was, in retrospect, kind of weird, but they destroyed everybody else. Uh, my, my good old Missouri Tigers couldn't uh, uh, field enough um, healthy guys in the bowl game. And thank goodness, because I would have won that game by 24 points. Um, like they are, they were dynamite last year. The problem with them is they were dynamite in the lines. That was the offensive and defensive line were huge for them. And they lost just enough guys on both sides of the ball that kind of makes you worry. I can't like if they returned a little bit more in the lines, I think they're a potential top 10 team mm-hmm. on the other side though. You've got Indiana who won close games had uh, an amount of turnover fortune that isn't going to, mm-hmm. they're just probably not going to keep it up. They're probably going to struggle a little bit more in close games this year, but they're still really hard to prepare for they're, like what their defense does. They don't have just dramatic talent top to bottom, but they figure out exactly what you don't want to do and they make you do it to beat them. And, and so they're a really tough out in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, but I understand why I was the favorite here. I do think, you know, game to game, down to down, they were a better team last year, even if they didn't have the better record or did, I guess, no, did they, what was Indiana's final record? Whatever it was, they ranked higher. And, and I think, um, and I think I was the better team. Didn't they go undefeated for a long time and then lose their quarterback at toward the end? Of the yeah. Game? Um, that, that's the other wild card with Indiana is they were lucky in, in three or four different ways, but then they also, they were pretty inefficient throwing the ball with Michael Penix jr. And then he gets hurt and they were really inefficient throwing the ball after that. So mm-hmm. um, that right. is certainly something to adjust for as well. All right. What about Penn state going to Wisconsin? This, this has to be one of the absolute top games of the weekend. Maybe after Georgia Clemson, this is the, the best game of the weekend. What do you, yeah, I mean, I think, 
as far as needing to learn something about teams, Wisconsin and Penn State are probably one, two on my list. I mean, they're both teams that have been as reliable top 10 to 15 um, performers as anyone outside of, you know, the, the quote unquote ruling class this year or in recent years, except last year, both of them just had weird things go on. Wisconsin had whole bunch of apparently tested and tracing issues, especially on offense. You never really saw their first, uh, their first string offense on the field. Graham Mertz looked good and then horrible and then pretty good again at the end of the year. And we just don't know if we can make anything out of what we saw from Wisconsin last year. And then you had Penn state who, you know, probably, you know, would have hired uh, Mike Yurcich as their offensive coordinator last year had he not gone to Texas, um, or at least they would have. I, I know I, I saw him on the list initially, and um, you know they get they get a chance to to right that wrong. They they bring in Yurcich if if he can make a difference with Sean Clifford, which I don't know. It, it, we still don't really know what Sean Clifford's ceiling is, but they were better than their record last year, and and now they kind of seem like they're right there uh, to be a top 10 team again, but playing these two, these two teams playing each other in week one is fantastic. And we're going to know exactly who the number two team in the big 10 uh, is right out of the gates. I love the Yersich question. I, I, I want to see him with a good head football coach. I, I felt like there's a big old governor on him last year at UT and uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens with Penn state. Hey, um, talking about this year and last year, I know you grappled with some of these issues. I think it's a super interesting one for this show to talk about. Yeah. The models, the models that people like you build and Massey Peabody and FBI, and now lots and lots of folks have models, generally draw to some extent on the previous year to understand what's going to happen this year, right? So yep. one thing that happens is you know who they recruited, and so you have some idea of the base level of talent. But then you do something with last year's production, and you've done lots of neat things. In fact, your returning production numbers are, I would say, one of the most successful college football stats out there in terms of adoption. I mean, heck, Stuart Mandel quotes you multiple times in the preseason, and Mandel's not a quant in any form or fashion. So, but you're, but you're working with returning production on this big question mark of 2020. So can we, can we dig into the model for a second? And this would be an interesting question for Eric and Shane as well. I mean, what do you do when you go to, when you go to ring signal out of the 2020 noise? I mean, you take a, you take an educated guess and, and you hope basically. Um, but you, but the thing about modeling is you have to write down your educated guess. Yeah. precisely. Yeah. I, I, so, okay. So the typical process for SP plus projections is like basically three parts. Number one, the, the biggest part by far is take last year's uh, last year's ratings basically and adjust them based on your returning production, which is a number that I derived from just looking at, you know, trying to collect data for a few years and look at, you know, when you lose X percent of your quarterback passing yardage, how much of an impact does that have on next year's SP plus rating? I do that for quarterback and all the running back stuff and, and receiving core and offense. I have, I've snap count data now. So offensive line snaps and stuff like that. Um, Mm -hmm. That was kind of a Holy grail for me for a while. And and so I played with it and it absolutely has an impact um, overall. So you do that for basically everything. And, and what I found was, you know, quarterback, obviously, but then uh, turnover in the receiving core and turnover in the secondary more than anything else um, make a difference with the next year's 
whether you're going up or down the next year. So mm-hmm. just kind of direct, you know, created a, a formula based on that. And, and you crank out a number that says you're returning 72.4% of your production or whatever. And based on that, you're projected to improve or regress by X amount. Mm-hmm. Um, so that alone, if, if all you did was take last year's SP plus ratings and this projected change, I mean, that's going to be pretty decent, imp- uh, pretty decent projection right there. But then I add in, even on that point, what do you yep. do when you've got, Pack twelve teams to play four well, games, and SEC, oh, I'm, I mean, oh, I'm getting SEC to that. played ten, and got some playing teams played seven, and yep. what the heck? So the rest of the formula is based on just a you know recruiting rankings uh, from the last a weighted average from the last uh, I don't even remember four years I think, and then um, a, a tiny little piece that's just basically like weighted history going back five years, which I kind of look at as a program health measure more or less like if you were suddenly good or bad last year you're probably going to regress towards the mean a little bit um and that helps that process out so anyway that's the normal formula um and and in a normal year that that first piece last year plus returning production is going to account for uh, like 70 75 percent of the overall projection just it it is the strongest indicator by far okay okay and so i spent that's when when i spit out the initial february projections i just use that and suddenly like every pac 12 team was in the top 30 because everybody's returning like 90 percent of their uh, production from last year and so they're all going to be great but um the more i thought about it I, and overthought and overthought over the course of the off season, I decided like my best bet was to kind of create a sliding scale of sorts to where if you played like Alabama, if you played 13 games last year, fine. Like we're going to, we're going to use the normal, we're going to use the normal formula and the normal weighting for Alabama. If you are Ohio and played three games last year or Arizona, uh, Arizona state playing four, then it just doesn't make any sense to do that. And so the fewer games you played, it was just kind of a sliding scale. The fewer games you played, the more that program health measure comes into account and the more, a little bit more, the recruiting part comes into effect. So I just have to rely on further back priors um, more than anything else if I can't take as much from last season. That's all I could think to do. Right. There's this overall suppression of the weight on 2020, which makes yeah. a lot of sense given how completely crazy. I mean, we know how many games they played and we can quantify that, but there are other factors going on that we can't quantify right. or we may not even know about. Yep. That we, but we can be sure changed the diagnosticity of last year. It was just a big, <laughs> messy ball. Yep. Yeah, you trying to. Oh, sorry. Yeah, no. I was just gonna say, like, you can also you can make the case that I shouldn't even like even for Alabama playing thirteen games, I shouldn't include last year's. uh, Well, that was gonna be my that was gonna be my question, Bill. And it's for a semi selfish reason because I'm literally (laughs) working on a research project now, and I'm calling it negative information, where you can actually collect data and predictions get worse. And so I'm just wondering, is there an argument that could be made? Forget the sliding scale. Maybe you know, get rid of the entire season, and you might do better. I mean. There is absolutely an argument. I know LSU fans have been making that argument for me uh, with me yeah, all year. <laughs> because, you know, not self-serving at all. Um, but you know, they go they go five and five last year. Derek Stingley's never healthy. Um, all, all the the COVID issues they have and everything else, they are like, well, of course, last year didn't count. You got to throw that out, and I'm not going to throw that out. But there is, I mean, you can make an argument. I, I just don't know. I don't have any previous information for how this should work. Let me, let me flip it around and ask a, another question. What, what can we expect? How, how different can we expect this year to be given how differently the rosters are constituted? Yeah. Players got this extra year. Um, it doesn't, so you've got more, you've just gotten more returning 
experience than ever in the history before and never will be again this high. Yeah, um, yeah it's, that's awesome. It's, it's disproportionate around programs, you know, programs where a lot of these guys could go to the NFL. They're not sticking around as much, but guys where this was the last football they were ever going to play. It seems like, no, sign me up. I'll do another year. Yeah. And so, but this now we're what the, what the, what the analysts would say is we're beyond the support. We don't have any history that says what happens when you have 22 of your top 24 back it's just absurd. So what, what, Bill, what, at a high level, what do you think we should expect this year, given how oddly constituted the rosters are? Well, the one thing I think we, that I hope we can absolutely expect is like quality has got to be high. Uh, you know, everybody's more yes. experienced and theoretically just the quality of play from game to game should be higher than normal. And I'm excited about that, but yeah, I mean, Basically, what it also means is all these so many fan bases right now are out there excited about how experienced their teams are. But you have to be really experienced just to break even like that returning production figure I was talking about on like from 2014 to 20. The national average for my returning production figure was 62.6 percent this year. It's 76.3 percent. There are only 16 teams that are below 62.6 percent on average. So basically, I mean, basically, to me, that just moves the bar, right? Like, you know, there's typically the ones at the bottom are going to regress. The ones at the top are going to improve. Well, now, even if you kind of return a decent amount, you're going to be toward the bottom and and it's going to be harder to keep up. But yeah, yeah, yeah. that's that's all. I I mean, that was the best stab I could take at it. What like if we had to say is 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 performance as a function of experience linear or is it concave or is it convex? I mean, we could be any right. of these things. We don't know yeah. which way no. it goes. No, and, and, and that makes uh, like Iowa State another one of the most interesting teams yes. in the country this year because um, actually, I mean, because so many mid where did they end up? They ended up 24th. They have 88% returning production. They're 24th. Normally that would be an easy like first or second place. But basically, they're off the charts in terms of experience. Minnesota's off the charts. Uh, UCLA is ninety three percent. They were the you know they were sixth in in the uh, country, second in the P five. Arizona State's ninety five percent. They almost literally return everybody on offense. So, but Iowa State's a really interesting one because they're coming off maybe their best performance in the history of Iowa state football, um, their first AP top 10 uh, finish ever. And now they return their quarterback, their Heisman contender running back. Uh, most of their receivers, most of pretty much everybody who was good. So what does that mean? Do you, does that mean they're just going to keep like going straight up or, no, or I think are this they? Is what, this is, this is one of the most important questions. For yeah. the year. Like literally, is it linear or not? It's because everybody loves this story. I, I think I'm ready to short it because it yeah. makes such a good story. I, <laughs> That's... I, I think, maybe there's this I mean, who knows but it's possible there's a ceiling effect there's possible yeah. that there's no difference between returning 18 of your top 24 and returning 21 of them right. i mean there's only or maybe it's the exact opposite and there's all these benefits from interaction with each other in history but i'm ready to short it's too pretty a story to be yep. as good as everyone wants it to be so yeah, that's that's usually a good way to look at uh, uh well an accurate way to look at things is no this is too good it won't happen and mm-hmm. probably mm-hmm. won't but ucla it would be such a fun story if suddenly ucla is like a top 20 team because of all the experience they've got it's suddenly Miami is like a legitimate top six or seven team because they return everybody from last year. There are a lot of stories I want to happen this year. And that's usually a pretty good indication that they won't. Well, the, the, um, 
I think the one thing we can be sure of is that uncertainty should be a little bit higher. There should be more yeah. surprises, oh, yeah. um, which, uh, which always makes fun. Listen, another big picture story that we haven't had a chance to visit with you about is what the changes that have happened over the summer. And especially interested in your perspective, one, you, you, you follow football closely, but, but you're also kind of a champion of the group, group of five and kind of encourage people to look around the whole landscape of college football. What are you feeling and thinking about the changes with both NIL and realignment with Texas and Oklahoma moving to the SEC and now the Alliance saying and what it might mean for college football in general, yeah. NIL uh, and this realignment stuff. Well, NIL first, I think we're still figuring it out. I mean, all I really knew for sure about NIL out of the gates was that a lot of people were going to make really stupid bets on um, uh, like on the amount of money they were willing to spend on this or that. Yeah. That, you know, whatever the gym owner in Miami throwing like hundreds of thousands of dollars out to every single player, we're going to have a pretty, it's going to be wild West for a little bit. And we're going to, and people are going to figure out like what actually benefits my company when it comes to dishing out this money and what doesn't. So that's, I mean, we're definitely so the one, the one so thing far. I'd push back on you about that is it's not these guys don't necessarily expect economic returns. Some of these well, guys have money to burn and they just want bragging rights around right. the poker table. But how long, how much money do you have in terms of how, can you burn that money every single year? Or at some point, are you like, wow, what am I doing here? <laughs> that's that's these, my curious. Some, nah, some of these guys have it. Some of yeah, these guys have it and they just sure. spend it there as, as pass it on to their kid. And, and I do think, though, the Miami thing was interesting, too, because I was trying to figure out, like, for the, you know, all the, the straw men that were being uh, created for this argument about it. Well, now Alabama will get all the recruits, you know, like, oh, no, it might benefit the big boys. And I'm sure it will to whatever degree. Um, but I am curious who else it benefits, because you can make a case that the Miamis and Nebraskas of the world, the either ones with the really unique brands or the ones with the hometown brand like Nebraska, maybe this helps uh, them. Uh, quite a bit. And, and it's hard to say whether that's going to happen or not at this point anyway. But then I've also, I've also just been really curious about, you know, all the arguments we we're making, you can say benefits the big boys and they're going to get all the recruits, or there's always been the counterpoint to me in that, like, are you going to find that if you're going to be the 21st best uh, recruit in Michigan's signing class, does it benefit you from a money standpoint, from an NIL standpoint to go there? Or would it, uh, would it benefit you more to be by far the strongest recruit in Eastern Michigan's recruiting class? Um, <laughs> and, and that's a tricky example. I mean, Ypsilanti isn't the biggest uh, market in the world, but Toledo, for instance, like um, w- would it benefit certain mid-major schools to where now they can, I mean, they're not going to suddenly start signing top 20 classes, but you might be able to get a couple more stars out of it if you play the game right. So that well, really it, has me curious. It, is, it must be so, so difficult to because so much of that is very idiosyncratic, I would guess, yeah. those conditions, yes. right? I, well, Shane, exactly. The, but the idiosyncrasy, given that there are 130 FBS yeah. programs, I mean, you can imagine there being a miniature Oregon or three Right. Emerge where one big benefactor is like, hey, you know, I mean, I think South Carolina has been in the doldrums too long. Let me step up and like right. really put some money behind this program yep. or Michigan State or whatever. Um, yep. It could happen. I mean, one one person could make a difference in the way that the Oregon Nike relationship has been profoundly influential. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very I, I don't think we have any answers whatsoever for this yet. But I, I mean, those are the questions I've had. And it's been really fun just kind of watching this play out so far. All right. And then what about your favorite university, the University of Texas moving to the SEC? <laughs> um, 
Well, so the 12 team playoff thing, obviously the pushback from there is, you know, this alliance of the ACC and big 10 and PAC 12, which is really like literally a survivor style. We're just going to vote together. So you can't vote us (laughs) off kind of deal. Right. Like I don't, I don't understand exactly like the extra, the scheduling, um, you know, if they all drop down to eight conference games, they free up some spots, they can schedule games against each other. That's fun. I'm always happy when we get creative with non-conference scheduling, but that we've seen a lot of pushback on on the playoff because Greg Sankey was on the subcommittee and therefore it can't be trusted. We have to think about what this means now that they've added Oklahoma and Texas when like there, it wasn't written in invisible ink. Like you're the, whatever you thought the, you know, it's not going to be like you sign on and suddenly there's going to be a clause that shows up that the SEC gets every spot in the playoff. It's whatever the benefits and drawbacks were for a 12 team playoff before OU and Texas announced they were moving. They're the same now. It's just now you're looking at a situation where the uh, SEC might get an extra half team on average in the playoff with, with OU and, and maybe Texas occasionally <laughs> involved in the playoff once, race. Once, once every 20 years. Apparently. That's right. Um, but no, and that's been the the whole college football ethos of cutting off your nose to, st- to spite your face. I think that's what we're seeing from a lot, with a lot of this pushback right now, because I tw- the, the, the hilarious thing about the whole 12 team idea, we skipped right past eight because it was yeah. this perfect political compromise. The SEC basically saying, okay, well, you want inclusion? Here you go, Cincinnati. Here you go, Pac-12. Right. You're going to get your inclusion and we're going to get more at-large bids. That's the trade. And right. Notre Dame, uh, Jack Swarbick was on the committee as well, the subcommittee as well, to talk about the 12 team playoff. And, and he was like, yeah, I, I want more at large bids so we don't have to join the ACC. And he got that. And everybody basically got a piece of the, of the compromise here. And, and it worked out, I mean, strangely well in that regard. Uh, it was extremely political. But again, to me, the, the calculus doesn't change now just because yeah. OU and Texas are moving. And, if they, if they suddenly slow play that, if the Pac-12 slow plays the expansion and therefore doesn't get playoff teams for a longer period of time, I don't know what you're expecting to benefit from that. Yeah, so one way to play this out is there, it's a lot of bluster right now, and maybe yeah. they actually do have hurt feelings, and maybe they do f- believe what they're saying right now, but that with a little time, they'll see oh, if their right. self-interest is actually served by continuing with this sooner rather than later idea. The one yeah. thing that the, the important wrinkle in there is whether they can get seemingly this is pretty rational get fox involved with the bid because they don't they don't want to just leave it with espn for the next four years or whatever it has to be they'd like to if they're gonna if they're gonna move they'd like to go ahead and get fox involved and you would think that it's in espn's best interest to do that espn can do better even if they share some of the goods with that many more games with that many more playoff games i would think Right. I mean, obviously, I, I'm going to tiptoe um, around anything. Oh, your employer. The... I forget that. That's <laughs> but, I mean, just the math suggests like, I mean, obviously, you'd like to, if you're a company that wants to broadcast these games, obviously, you'd prefer all of them. But if you only get some of them, it's still more. Uh, if, yeah, if, right, the, right. if the pie is increasing, then, you know, you're still getting more it's, of it overall. That's there you go, man. You could teach our negotiation classes around here. (laughs) Listen, we're going to run out of time with you. We could spend all day with you, but I want to ask a question related to your latest article. It's tough to keep up with them, Bill. Honestly, you do a lot. You kick out a lot of stuff, which is awesome, but you've got your college football mega preview. It's how to get the most fun out of the 2021 (laughs) season. And you do a couple things here that are neat. I'm going to try to get one or two nuggets from you, but you basically say you have this philosophy has been, been your philosophy for a while. It goes, along with your collaboration with Stephen Godfrey for a long time, we eat the whole hog in college football. You don't want to just stay with the top two or three teams or even just the big 
the, the, the power five, you want to, you want to cover the landscape. And in recent years, that has meant for you dropping down into like FBS and yeah. heck, you're even talking about division three now and NAIA football, which is awesome. <laughs> so the thing you done in this article, which is deep, you, you, you evangelize that, but you also pick week by week, right. you give like lists, these weekly lists of, okay, you want to watch, you know, some like crazy unexpected teams here are the games to watch each year of each week of the year. You want to watch some non FBS ball, which you ought to do. Here's some games to pay attention to, which is awesome. Okay. Of that feast that you spread out on the table for us, give us a couple of your favorite bits, just a couple of bits. People can go read the whole article, but like, as you, you know, everybody, as you prepare food for your guest, there's something that has, a, you have a special twinkle in your eye about what is it? on this? <laughs> yeah. There are a couple of them that stood out. Um, that I particularly enjoyed. Like, yeah, yeah. The, the general idea is if you just want to follow your team in the playoff race, like that's fine. You can, you can do that and, and you'll enjoy yourself enough, but college football has, you know, through my time at SB nation and I've figured out ways to continue it through the years. Um, the more, the further, the deeper you dive, the more rewarding it turns out to be um, because so many of the things that we, that a college football fan tends to enjoy about college football, um, it, whether, whether you like the pros too or not, it, you know, the, the, there's a little bit more instability in relying on 18 to 22 year olds for your, you know, your good fortune. Uh, the ball's always pointy. Uh, things are just going to bounce in silly ways. And so, th- you know, the further down you go, the more you realize like th- there's just so much history involved and there's just so much silliness to catch on a, in, in a given weekend uh, from coast to coast across the country. And so you really can, however far you have to go. Some, some years when the national title race is really boring, you do kind of have to dig down to <laughs> find the entertaining spots. That's right. Um, but whether you, whether, you know, even if the fun, if the top, ticket items are, are, are fun, you still find a lot of value in, in digging around. So the two parts that I really enjoyed, uh, one of them was just a, a, an ode to small school football. Um, you know, I, I finally started watching, kind of tracking along with my numbers, D2 football a couple of years ago in FCS. Um, I figured out a way to do D3 this year. So that's going to be fun. But like all these schools have feeds of their, of their games on their websites and you can pull up like a playoff game for D3 in, you know, early December and it's snowing and there's like a train going by the stadium (laughs) and it's just all this silliness that's just waiting out there to be taken in. So I did try to dive into it just a week to week list of here are some really, really big Guaranteed to be super fun, small school games, whether it yep. was like, uh, you know, North Dakota, North Dakota State, or I threw yep. in a couple yep. of NAIA games in there. So that was fun. Yep. But the part that I kind of, I didn't intend at first until I realized it really needed to be in there was what I was calling the underrated rivalries. Like, we know the Iron Bowl, we know uh, Army Navy, we know, uh, you know, Michigan, Ohio State, whatever else. But yep. there are certain games that are pretty much guaranteed to either be close every single year, like Baylor, West Virginia almost always close. And when it's not, it's like some hilarious 62 to 34 game that is still (laughs) silly in its own way. And then there are just games that you don't even think about that are crazy hostile, like air force Navy, like Iowa, Purdue, like Utah, USC has very quickly Utah cares so much about that game that they have made USC care about that game too. And those, the more I thought about Ole Miss, Arkansas, 
the the Hunter Henry that's, fourth that's the and twenty five. That's the one that could, that game like, that play alone is going to land it on this list for the rest of his rest of right. eternity. And, and like the very next year, Chad Kelly like dives for first down on fourth down late in the game and comes up short or fumbles or something like that. Like it, they had so many chaotic endings. Yeah. So t- the more I thought about it, the more I realized that's the key. Those games that uh, make sure like whether they're in the top fifteen, whether they're not involved at all this year, some games just. Seem to always be yeah. ridiculous and if you get the more of those games you catch the happier you're going to be that's great well you did us a real service by not only talking about these different angles into college football but giving us a week-by-week breakdown where you can drop in and, and grab these things by the way it struck me you may not know but i grew up on um nai football lone star conference i grew up I just lone, angelo state and texas a and i and even sam houston used to be in that division Stephen f austin it was great fun Weatherford, Oklahoma, home of Southwestern Oklahoma State, 1996 NAIA champions. <laughs> there you go. I That's knew my hometown. I knew, I knew you had that history in you. It explains <laughs> some of the group of five champion and now going on down into, I mean, heck, you got your SP plus spinning for D3. That's some work, Bill. That's great. All, all yeah, 14,000 D3 teams. Unbelievable. Well, listen, we wish you the best with what you got going on. Enjoy week one. Always glad to talk to you. Thanks for spending some time with us. Thank you. Absolutely. Bill Conley of ESPN and many other things. You can catch his work up there. You can also catch him on Twitter. His handle, Bill, your handle is a complicated one. ESPN underscore Bill C maybe. I never thought the underscore would be as hard as it is, but I I wish I hadn't put it in there. Yeah. We'll get you. You can find it. Bill Conley. Thank you, Bill. All right, guys, that has been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on business radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the fourth quarter now. Our final segment of our college football preview show. Delighted to have in for a discussion one of our favorite football watchers, observers, and writers, Stephen Godfrey, longtime friend of the show, has been on here multiple times, and he's somebody I always want to go to when interesting things happen in college football. Stephen, good morning to you, and welcome back to the show. How are y'all? Good. Mighty fine. Mighty fine. That's right. You can, you're, you are legitimately South. We trust your use of the term y'all in whatever way you want to use it. Um, All right. Steven, let's, let's talk first about where people can find your work. You are on Twitter, of course, at 38 Godfrey at 38 Godfrey. Great following college football. You have a podcast called the split zone duo. You do that with Richard Johnson and you've got a new partner there as well, right? Richard Johnson and Yes, Alex Kirshner of Slate, Richard now of Sports Illustrated, and then myself, I'm still at Vox Media. So we are, um, if, if you're listening and you know who I am, you've probably heard the old podcast, PAPN, Podcast and Play Nobody. And so we sort of took that and, and made a new thing. And you're doing a couple shows a week, even three shows for supporters. And so it's a great way to get a college football fix. You've also got an enterprise, a new enterprise going on. I want to hear a little bit about Secret Base. What can you tell us about Secret Base? Secret Base, if you're not familiar with Vox Media at all, is basically our video team, and we are doing sort of a new, I would call it a new version of the video essay format for sports. So it's, it's a little bit more evergreen content. We call it in the biz, Cade. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not as much, hey, this is what's happening this week, as it is kind of examining and reexamining older, you know, either historical events or sports narratives. Um, mm-hmm. It is a very, it is nothing if not idiosyncratic and totally unique. 
Mm-hmm. I would say that. So check us out. Uh, you can find us. All the content is free on YouTube. You can also go and search Secret Base via SB Nation. But this is um, this is our stab at sort of the video culture, the way you know, you know multimedia is where 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 we think it's going. I'll say. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting you got there because you did some other video related work in in the last right. couple of years, right? You you made this kind of transition from straight up traditional journalism to something a little bit more video based. It's interesting to see that you've continued that direction. We, um, yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I think a lot of old ink-stained wretches, we all had to figure out how to use a camera or audio equipment at some point in our career. And uh, I'm right at that age where I, I, you know, I've told this story before. I finished college where they were still, they were still teaching in journalism school type, type font sizes and le- uh, letting and kerning and all this kind of stuff that you need to yeah, know for yeah. layout. And then 10 years later, it's like, nope, you're, you're all digital now, buddy. Good luck. So, um, my message for anybody who wants to work in the media is you better be as versatile as humanly possible and you better be format agnostic and, and right. learn how to tell the story seven different ways. So, right. Um, right. We did the, we did the documentary foul play, which is kind of funny now. It's actually seeing a lot of life now um, on the secret base channel where it, it, it was with Verizon for a while and contracts. So we moved it back to Vox, but um, it's seeing some life now because of NIL and, yeah. um, and, and the weird culture that it is sort of, you know, um, we, we, we look like Nostradamus, I guess we, you know, we kind of, we kind of called the shot a hundred percent. So, so this is one of the things I want to talk about. And I've wanted to talk about with you for a couple of months now, since it broke, you're one of the first people, people I've thought about, you have been a go-to source on all things like <laughs> college athlete funding, legal and illegal. I'm right. very curious to hear your perspective on NIL. I will say this. I'm going to say, I don't know, but I, but I, I don't know about particulars. I, I'll get questions from like our listeners on the show or readers about very specific elements of this as it relates to college football recruiting. And the, the, the real true answer is we don't know because the people who are actually involved in the legislation of these bylaws, they haven't even gone to convention yet to sort of figure this out. The problem is the NCAA took so long fighting it that they didn't see the wave coming. And so now they, they're basically powerless to stop, at least for a little while. It's open season, if I'm using some cliches and metaphors yep. here to easily explain yep. this. Yep. It's going to be open season. A lot of the stuff that happens in 2021 through even maybe it might get legislated away. And so right now it is, it is a little bit of an open season if you are a small business owner, if you are a car dealership, if you are you know, us, uh, it, pretty much any kind of um, any kind of business with a with a interest in this, whether you want to legitimately have a spokesperson or not, I'm making finger quotes, <laughs> audio medium. Um, this, you know, I, I'll cut it down to this: the small time cash transactions that we saw that were that were formerly elite sort of fake laws. More and more of that, I would just just to put a number on it, I would say two thirds of that is going to go above board with NIL. Yeah. How's that? Right. So. Right. It's right. the smaller, what we used to call the $100 handshake, right? You know, yep. the tailgate of the football game. That yep. stuff's going to go above board now. Now, the rest yep. of it, people have said, is this the end of cheating? And to which I say, absolutely not. There will always be someone with trying to gain an advantage. That's not going away. I just think the smaller payments now are just going to go above board. What does cheating, what does that last one third look like? You know, I think, I think there are people who are hesitant to go the NIL route for different reasons. I think a lot of people who don't want to be associated with a university on paper. I think that's a big concern. A lot uh-huh. of the individuals who, who compensated these athletes, they don't want anything that formally associates them with a particular institution. So maybe they set up a shell company or maybe they just don't go to that trouble and still just okay. actually go and physically hand off money. I think the biggest question that I have about it overall is what impact it will have on the competitive landscape. 
do you think it will exacerbate the differences that some of these programs, the advantages they have? Do you think it'll mitigate right. some of them? What Just shake it up with noise. Like, what do you think the impact will be? I think in the early going, we're not going to see anything upset because the richest programs in college sports were the ones who were able to, now everyone saw this coming inside the industry. It was the NCAA that fought it. The school saw it coming, but the problem is this. If you're Texas, you're Alabama, you're USC, you have the ability to go out, find consultants, staff up, develop a department of individuals who have expert, you know, that, that have a background in licensing, that have a background in contract law, and have individuals in place ready to help your student athletes on day one. And that's what's going on right now. I talked to mm -hmm. several different people in the SEC who basically, they were ready to go. They took all that TV money. They said, hey, this is going to be something that we need to help guide our, our players on because it's going to be such an – it's really just an unknown horizon. The problem is this. Way down in the Sun Belts, the FCS, the have-nots of this, of this industry, let's say, they don't really have the ability to help their kids out even – and it leaves them a little susceptible to the more dubious kind of third-party involvement. So yeah. until this gets ironed out, I, I do believe the rich get richer on this. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, that makes utter sense to me, for better or worse. Listen, the other landscape-changing announcement this summer that I was dying to hear from you on is Texas and OU moving to the SEC. We don't know what the time frame is. A lot of folks still think it's going to happen sooner rather than later. But right. as a longtime SEC guy, um, by origin, by where you live now, by family, sure. by every by every way, what do you? What, how, does, how does this feel to you? What do you think it's going to mean? How do you think those two programs are going to fare? What are the implications for some of the other powerful programs in the SEC? What do you think? I think right now we're still in the reactionary phase, and I think a lot of the we've seen a lot of knee jerk hypotheses, which have, have kind of given me a a good laugh on this idea of like, well, you know, the Big Ten will just take Kansas. And I'm like, in what world is is it an equal response to take <laughs> Kansas when this right. seismic thing has occurred? Um, in the short term, I think what we are now seeing is a consolidation of the halves in college football. I am going to make this prediction, and it's going to sound insane, but I'm going to go ahead and do this because like, you guys deal with economists all the time, and economists sound insane until they actually predict what's going to happen. So <laughs> here's what we're seeing in college football. It's not going to happen in this round of realignment, but we're all old enough to remember the last round and the round before that. We are seeing a consolidation of power programs that are agnostic to the idea of a regionalism or what we define the basically what a con what use does a conference serve? That's a question we've been asking ourselves for years. They're a negotiating block. They're an, usually an organization of schools with like-minded interests, economic pursuits, educational pursuits, and they're they're from a particular region. My belief is this: we are now seeing a move towards something that's going to take about twenty years. We are going to see a super league emerge. 20 to 30 teams that stand above the rest of the sport that are essentially $100 million, $200 million budgets that operate like brands, that operate like professional teams. Mm -hmm. So Texas, Ohio State, Notre Dame, you know, Florida, et cetera. These brands are basically, and the reason why I'm basing all this, this is not just because Texas and Oklahoma are going to the SEC. This is because I'm seeing this language emerge in conversations where they start talking about, they basically schools don't want to be uh, encumbered by the entire FBS, 130 schools. And what I always use as an example is Alabama is frustrated that they have to play by the same economic rules as Louisiana Monroe, one of the mm -hmm. poorest programs in the FBS. So what you're seeing now is this word autonomy, autonomy, the autonomy schools. That is code for we are rich. We don't want to play by these rules. We want mm -hmm. to have exceptions for us. It's like a favored nation status, okay? Mm -hmm. 
This mm-hmm. is going to continue, and it is my belief within 15 years, the SEC will not technically exist as you know it now, okay? I went to college at a have-not, the University of Mississippi. Economically, I'm talking about. I, my belief is this. In the next 10 to 20 years, these have-not schools that are in power conferences are going to be shoved aside mm-hmm. because eventually these multimillion-dollar programs are going to say, well, it only serves our interest to really operate in an ecosystem of somewhere between 30 and 40 teams. So South Carolina, you're out of luck. Clemson, you're in. Ohio State, you make sense. Purdue, we don't need you. I think this mm-hmm. is going to happen. This, I sound insane saying this, okay? And every commissioner is going to say, absolutely not. We would never abandon our founding members. Mm-hmm. Da, 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 da. It, it, we are winnowing out. We are winnowing out everything to do with this sport that does not conform to economic standards. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's I, – I don't know how we get from here to there, but I know that the forces, the dominant forces – all push in that direction. And you, you just see too much disparity between what an Alabama LSU game can bring you or a Michigan, Ohio state game versus when they have to go play Vandy or what Texas tech even brings to the table. The disparity exactly. is, is great and it's growing. And um, generally that, I mean, look what, look what Texas and Oklahoma just did to their longtime partners in their conference. I mean, when, Push comes to shove that the, the they, they are not willing to, I mean, Texas and OU were maybe not, OU was proving perfectly fine and able to take care of itself. Texas was falling further and further behind in the talent race alone. And that right. just puts a ceiling on what they can do. And that's not something that was acceptable to them. Doesn't matter how many hundreds of years we've had been playing Texas Tech and how good of friends we're supposed to be. Well, I mean, if you go back in time, I know, like I said, I, I know I sound insane, but, but if you go back 15 or 20 years, just even in the Texas political system, don't talk about sports for a second. Let's just talk about Texas politics. The idea of A&M and Texas leaving individually at different times and leaving behind these partner institutions. Yeah. Think about when Ann Richards was governor of Texas. Yeah. This was yeah. unheard of. Right. You're eventually going to see basically the unmooring of these major brands from any sort of state or regional ideology or connection or loyalty because we are moving towards a more professional atmosphere for how we conduct these, you know, mm-hmm. college sports as a business, really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a really interesting example because those, you would have expected if any two programs were going to move together, it would have been those two and quite the opposite. A&M kind of led the way and they've shown what the consequences are over the last 10 years is they've really, they've really got some momentum now that's going to be hard to arrest in Texas is interested in arresting it. Listen, we, let's talk about football we actually have in front of us, which is great fun. We're at week one. We've got a great slate. Give us something about week one that you have your eye on, whether you're excited about Ooh. or curious about. What's, what's kind of top of mind for you going into this weekend slate of games? Wow, actual football. Um, I, I yeah, want to see right. something that breaks. I want to see something that breaks one of our standards that we don't like right now. We have such – we're so frozen at the top right now with, with five or six of these programs that are. Yeah. I, I really do think – if we don't see some churn at the top by the end of the season, I think it's going to start negatively affecting television ratings and, and okay. casual viewer interest. The okay. thing, Kate, I re- I'm really looking for are actually two programs out West, Oregon and Washington, because the West cannot continue to atrophy and this remain a national sport. Right. The Pac-12, it, it, it's, it's beyond a punchline at this point. USC, it's not going to happen for a couple more years, in my opinion. There has to be another program that's carrying weight out West to maintain the sport itself. That's my opinion. Mm-hmm. So watch. Mm-hmm. I'm really curious about Jimmy Lake in Washington. I think mean, Mario Cristobal is running an SEC program very quietly in Eugene. <laughs> right. Well, he's going to have a chance to show that week two Ohio State, right? That makes that a really big game in your eyes. I, I'll put it this way. They are, they are wincing at the fact that they did not get 
that particular roster last year to have or to have Oregon host Ohio State and Eugene last year. Yeah, they right. really, really wanted that game. It's for recruiting purposes, for branding purposes. Now it's much tougher to go into the shoe with this offensive roster. Right. Well, you talk about a couple of programs you're wanting to show um, other ways to get churn at the top or have top programs not keep on keeping on up there. Of the of the elites that we've seen playoff year in, year out, those top five programs, which do you think are least likely to show up this year? If we see some churn, if we see someone knocked out of that top five, who would you expect it to be? You know, this isn't technically the answer you're looking for because some because the way the system is set up, the SEC has an inevitable participation in this four-team format. But I do think this is the year in which you could have a, a three- or four-headed sort of conference best. And what I mean yeah, by that is okay. I think they could all start kind of knocking each other off to where you get into a pretty heated debate come November, December, because I don't know if you have one singular exceptional roster right now Yep. Alabama is going to be fine. Anyone who anyone who proclaims their death, I mean, we should have learned our lesson by now with their ability, <laughs> with their ability to turn over coaching staffs and still develop and have consistency. But I'm not by. I mean, look, Georgia is the most buyer beware stock in this entire industry. Like <laughs> this idea that Georgia is going to figure it out and get out of their own way. I mean, I know I'm not supposed to believe in curses or any of that kind of stuff. I'm, I'm not, but I am looking at very real, <laughs> identifiable problems, and I am from the state of Georgia, and I can tell you that. Every time Georgia reaches this precipice, real identifiable problems such as such as their head coach's inability to modernize his offense or let their assistants do that. I'm telling you, all it it happens every time. Okay, brutal. All right. Well, listen, very helpful. Delighted to have the chance to talk football with you. Keep on with all the great work you're doing, Steve, and we'll talk to you again down the road. Thanks, guys. You bet. Stephen Godfrey, Vox Media. You can follow him on Twitter at 38Godfrey. Fantastic college football follow. Fantastic on anything he's doing college football related at 38Godfrey. That has been two hours of sports analytics. Another two hours of Wharton Moneyball this week. Three quarters of that time on college football. This is week one. Enjoy the games, guys. For the whole team, Shane Jensen, Adi Weiner, Eric Bradle. For our boss, Matty Dats. For our associate boss man, Deion Simpkins. Thank you for listening. Come back and join us next week. Between now and then, enjoy your sports.